You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 20. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. On today's episode of the show, we're talking about fire ecology and harvester ants. Yes, that's right. This is our first episode to focus on invertebrate wildlife. But before we jump into this week's interview, let's check in with Ben Mirren, who has a special edition of The Birds and the Beats, which features a new song about wildfire in Texas ecosystems. Thanks, Matt. This week, I've assembled a slightly different collection of sounds inspired by our discussion so far about the Texas horned lizard, or horny toad, and the importance of fire ecology and its conservation. The mixed prairie on which horned lizards and many other local species depend is under threat from brush encroachment. Woody plants like oak and juniper are clogging the ecosystem and spreading out of control. In the good old days, the proliferation of such plants was kept in check thanks to naturally occurring fires caused by lightning strikes, anthropogenic fires started by Native Americans, and of course, millions of grazing bison. But European settlement of the region augured the removal of such natural disturbance regimes. Farmers raising cattle altered the landscape and controlled fires. Hunters shot the bison, and woody plants were allowed to thrive and choke out what was left of the prairie. Conservationists are practicing fire ecology to restore the balance, since loss of prairie habitat doesn't just hurt the Texas horned lizard. As we discussed previously, and as we'll elaborate today, Its threatened status echoes the suffering of numerous other species across different animal groups. Our selection of sounds for today's composition reflects that diversity. At the bottom of the food chain, we have prairie grass and hay. The food for harvester ants, which comprise as much as 70% of the Texas horned lizard's diet. Then, in lieu of actual harvester ant sounds, we have the next best thing. The clicking sounds of ant pupa from the genus Myrmica scabernatus. Yes, indeed, that's what an ant sounds like. Higher up the food chain, we have mixed grassland-dwelling birds, including the lesser nighthawk, Montezuma quail, and wild turkey. Those are the turkey's alarm calls, which fit better with the composition than that classic gobble you might expect. Then we have the white-tailed deer. A species you may remember came up as another beneficiary of Texas horned lizard conservation. All these sounds are introduced through a lightning strike and ensuing wildfire sounds, which in their destruction of brushy undergrowth clear the way for this life to flourish. But as the music unfolds, listen for the return of those woody pests and some new species they attract. They will change the sound of the mixed prairie, just as they change its plant composition.
you may ask. As a flagship species for prairie conservation, the Texas horned lizard has its fair share of echoes in popular culture. It's the official state reptile and the mascot of Texas Christian University. But among these, perhaps the most recognizable is the Warner Brothers tribute to an old Texas horned lizard named Rip. Rip was a horny toad supposedly entombed in a cornerstone of the Eastland County Courthouse in Eastland, Texas in 1897. As legend has it, the same animal was exhumed in 1928, alive and unharmed. Despite the scientific implausibility of this tale, Old Rip has been immortalized by a series of cartoons on Looney Tunes starring Michigan J. Frog, the sonorous, cane-carrying, hat-sporting amphibian that also emerges from a time capsule at various points throughout history. In a 1955 short titled One Froggy Evening, he sings to whomever discovers his box hidden beneath a large boulder, but to no one else. The song goes like this. Hello, my baby. Hello, my honey. Hello, my ragtime gal. Send me a kiss by wire. Baby, my heart's on fire. If that song doesn't conjure up images of a dancing frog, you might also be living under a rock. Or maybe you were just born in the 21st century. But the chords in this original jam are in fact remixed elements of Mr. Frog's musical debut. In this context, they form an entirely new chord progression that blends with the natural sounds of horned lizard habitat. Thanks for listening. Wow, what a fascinating way to capture the essence of an ecosystem. And I love how Ben incorporated the legend of Old Rip into this song as a way to represent the Texas horn lizard. Now it's time to jump into this week's interview, which is our first to focus on invertebrate wildlife. So are ants and invertebrates less interesting than animals with backbones? Today's guest, Robin Verbal Pearson, definitely does not think so, and I think that after listening to our interview with her, you just might agree. Let's jump into the interview and see if I'm right. I'm here with Robin Verbal Pearson, who is the Assistant Professor of Fire Ecology and Director of the Center for Fire Ecology at Texas Tech University. Uh, how are you doing today, Robin? I'm good. How about you? I'm great. Thanks for coming on to the podcast here and uh, being so willing to share some of uh, the information you have about fire ecology with us. Uh, Well, thank you for having me. So the first question I have for you is we're going to start with the basics. Uh, I'm hoping you can just explain the term fire ecology to us. What does that mean in the context of your research? Okay, so fire ecology is the study of wildland fire. This is prescribed fires, wildfires, basically anything that's not contained in a fireplace or in a trash can. And we're looking at how fires affect ecology. So abiotic factors, organisms, populations, communities, and other uh, and ecosystems and their interactions with one another. We look at topics such as flammability, plant traits that influence flammability, heat tolerance, Uh, In addition, fire ecology also is broad enough that it includes things like human dimensions of fire and fire behavior. Fantastic. So how did you first become interested in studying fire and its role in our ecosystems? 
So I was working on my bachelor's at the University of Southern Indiana in Evansville, Indiana, and I was in my uh, introductory ecology class. And the first scientific paper that we had to read was on fire use in pine ecosystems in the Washita Mountains in Arkansas. And this is really cool stuff. You know, these, these systems are dependent on fire. And that really spurred my interest. So I started my master's at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville and was working on a project that looked at how fire influences carpenter ants. And I was enjoying it. But when I got out of my first prescribed burn, which was with the Nature Conservancy, I just fell in love. Putting fire on the ground is an amazing experience. And it's just nothing can quite compare. <laughs> neat. neat. <laughs> so um, I hope you can talk a little bit about some of the big picture research goals for your lab at, at Texas Tech University. Yeah, so we're still a pretty new lab. I got to Texas Tech in uh, August of 2012, so we're still getting our feet under us. But right now, the biggest thing we're working on is uh, the role of fire in management of ecosystems and how we can safely and effectively use fire across the landscape. Uh, so we have students working on how fire affects quail populations, how we can promote quail populations with fire. We also have students looking at horned lizards and some of those same questions. Uh, so really the big questions are those ecological roles of fire in landscape management. So I, I imagine you, you mentioned that you did your undergraduate and, and, and master's research in, in Arkansas, and now you're uh, in central Texas. I'm, I'm sure that fire probably plays a, a very different role in, in these different types of ecosystems. Yeah, uh, so yeah, most of my master's and my doctoral work were in Arkansas, and both of them were actually in oak hickory hardwood forests. And uh, so I'd say the role of fire is very similar across landscapes. You know, it's to remove dead and uh, dead dead litter, stimulate plant growth. Uh, but the way it works is very different. So in oak hickory forests, uh, fires are moving through primarily in the dormant season, uh, clearing off leaf litter and helping to stimulate oak growth in areas in Texas where I'm working right now. A lot of it's uh, short grass prairie. So we're looking at fires that occurred historically in the, probably in the fall. Uh, and they're coming through and they're really primarily working to stimulate plant growth and uh, seeds that are fire dependent. So scarifying those seeds. There's a lot of awareness um, about the presence of fire, um, at least these days, in drier ecosystems and ecosystems in the West. Um, whereas folks don't necessarily think about uh, fire being uh, a factor in um, some of these uh, uh, wetter ecosystems, some of these forest ecosystems, you know, like Arkansas, for example, I think most people wouldn't, uh, don't have an awareness of the fact that, that fire does play this important role in hardwood forests in Arkansas. Yeah, I'd say um, fire awareness is higher where wildfire frequency is higher. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so uh, in Arkansas, you know, fire use and prescribed fire is still a relatively new thing. I mean, it's only been the past 25 years or so that they've really started to re-implement fire. But historically, these landscapes were burning with wildfires probably you know, 200 years ago, just as frequently as some of these Western ecosystems. When graduate students uh, come to you, uh, you know, with, with a research idea, I mean, how, how much freedom do they have to uh, explore topics and research questions that most interest them uh, in relation to fire ecology? So this, this all kind of hinges on funding. A lot of times uh, when a student comes in, they are working on a project that is specifically funded by an agency. So we have certain things that we have to address that we've already agreed upon and how we've gotten the funding. Uh, but past that, once they've addressed those core issues that I have to have for the funding, I give them some freedom to work on a project or two that's really about their interests. And it's kind of 
know, a, a riskier project, a project we don't have any any real answers to or any idea what the answers to might be. Uh, for example, I had a student working on uh, harvestrants and had just a just a vague interest in harvestrants and how they scavenge non-food items and put them on their nest. We didn't really know why they were doing this, but it was a project we could add because it was interesting to the student. So we released this uh, this new video of ours um, about the Texas horn lizard and the research that, that Rachel Granberg uh, did um, when she was a part of your lab at Texas Tech University. Um, I, I guess I'm wondering... Um, had had anyone in your lab been been doing work on on horn lizards before Rachel came along, or or was this a new topic? Uh, this is brand new for me. Uh, Dr. Gad Perry was a co-investigator on this project. He's been studying horn lizards for several years, but this was my very first foray into anything herpetological at all. It's been really been really interesting and rewarding, though. So, what what was most interesting to you about the results of Rachel's research? So Rachel did some models to predict what the most important factors that influenced survival for horned lizards were. Uh, and she looked at male and female horned lizards individually. And she actually found that there was a different factor influencing male survival and female survival, which is really neat that you see the sexual difference. Uh, for males, it turned out that size was the biggest factor. For females, though, it was the presence of leaf litter. And specifically, survival was negatively correlated with the presence of leaf litter. And that's cool. And results for fire because fire is actively removing that litter layer on the soil surface. So her results are showing that there's a direct management ap- uh, implication for these lizards. So even though you uh, this research into horn lizards w- was new to you, uh, I mean there there is a component. There was a component about Rachel's research that, that you, um, you're probably a lot more familiar with, which is the connection between uh, the Texas horn lizard and harvester ants. Um, so I kind of want to delve into a, a little bit of natural history background on um, on the harvester ants. Um, are, are there any sort of uh, natural history facts that you find particularly interesting about these ants? Oh, well, they're, they're just a cool ant to begin with. But actually, I'd like to start with a morphological fact. Uh, the genus is called Pogonomirmex that the harvester ants belong to. And this literally translates into the bearded ant. And uh, since all ant workers are female, I kind of like to think of them as the bearded ladies of the ant community. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Uh, They have a structure that's called the semaphore. It it looks like a beard. It's long hairs under the, when you look at it under the microscope, and it's on the the bottom of the mandibles or the bottom of the head. And it probably helps them carry large seeds in their mandibles more effectively. It kind of gives those those seeds a prop underneath the mandibles. So that's probably my favorite fact. Uh, But in terms of natural history, it's really neat that they excavate these large disks of dirt around their nest. Uh, so the nest entrances are really conspicuous, easy to see, and these disks can be almost a meter in diameter. So big, uh, big, obvious structures made by these really small creatures. So Rachel explained that their diet consists primarily of seeds and grains. So um, I guess I'm wondering what impact uh, these foraging activities of the harvester ants have on the, the, the plants and the grasses uh, within their range? Yeah, uh, harvest ants are really, really important seed dispersers in arid uh, ecosystems. And some people might even argue the most important seed disperser in arid ecosystems. They harvest a large number of seeds from these plants, uh, but they don't consume everything that they actually uh, get. They bring them back to a cache that's near the nest, 
and a large number of these seeds actually remain in the ground and viable, so they're beneficial to these plants in terms of dispersal. Neat, neat. So we know that horn lizards rely on these ants uh, for a majority of their food supply, um, uh, but I guess I'm wondering if there are other species out there that, that rely as heavily um, on, on harvester ants uh, for their diet. You know, actually, uh, I looked this question up because I wasn't sure. And as far as I can tell, horn lizards are the only vertebrate specialists that I can find. Uh, there's a there's a genus of wasps, though, that actually goes in, captures, paralyzes the ant, takes the ant back to its nest, and feeds it to the larvae. Uh, but in terms of vertebrates, horn lizards seem like they're it. They have uh, factors in their blood that actually help detoxify the venom of the ant. So that may be one of the reasons they're able to able to prey on them so effectively. So... Um, I'm wondering how fire impacts the harvester ants. So one of Rachel's colleagues in the lab, Anna Meyer, was another graduate student of mine who finished up in um, in December of this year or December of last year, and she actually looked at this exact question. She looked at how fire impacts harvester ant populations, how fire impacts harvester ant colony sizes, and then how fire impacts the nutritional quality of the ants or how many calories each ant has. It turns out fire does not seem to impact populations, nor does it seem to impact the size of a colony. But what it does impact is that caloric content of the ant. And funny enough, ants from burned areas actually have fewer calories than ants from unburned areas, which is a really non-intuitive result. And we're still kind of working on what, what exactly is causing this. Huh. So I'm trying. <laughs> Hold on. I'm trying to wrap my head around that. So it it hasn't. So the the fire has an impact on the caloric intake and the caloric content. The caloric so how, content. Yeah, which would directly should directly impact those horned lizard, which is why we asked that specifically odd question. <laughs> I see. So you're talking about the caloric content of the ant itself, which yes. would have an impact on animals like horned lizards that that consume them. Yeah, there was about 10% less calories. Now, these are small C calories, not the big C calories. So there's about 27 calories in an ant from an unburned area and about 26 or 25 or 26 calories in an ant from a burned area. Huh. And you guys are still trying to figure out like why exactly that is. Exactly. It may be that these ants are working harder, they're moving further. Uh, we're, we're not really sure. It was a really surprising result. Huh, interesting. So I, I, I guess I kind of want to get into, uh, I mean, maybe taking a step back and, you know, looking bigger picture uh, about the impact that, that fire has on um, the, these ecosystems in, in central Texas. It, it, it seems interesting to me that this area, central Texas, is an area that, you know, it, these ecosystems are fire adapted ecosystems, right? Yes, um, but there are also ecosystems that have gone through this period, this extended period of fire suppression. Correct. Yes. Yes. Um, correct. So I, I guess I guess what's fascinating to me is you know uh, uh, I mean do we know the extent to which these ecosystems you know uh, have changed as a result of this extended period of fire suppression? I mean it seems like for you know the the harvester ant you know uh, it seems like an example of a species that was very readily able to adapt to this change? Uh, Yeah, it's always a fun question to think about what did this ecosystem look like 100, 150 years ago? Uh, In northern Texas, in the area where the short grass prairie is a little more extensive, 
I think fires, from to the best of my knowledge, fires were coming through about every three to seven years on a given in a given area, and that was probably maintaining an area with very few shrubs, very few trees, and that was a primarily grass-dominated ecosystem. In central Texas, where Rachel's work was occurring, uh, it gets a little it gets a little fuzzier. These were probably post oak savannas. Uh, they were experiencing fire maybe on the more four to eight, uh, four to twelve year cycles. They probably had a really diverse grass understory with some shrub component and some trees that were able to survive during the fires. Uh, so for organisms that lived there, that meant a vastly different system than we see now. Now we see a much shrubbier, less grassy, tree-dominated system where you actually get tree canopies coming through. Uh, so the organisms that would have lived there definitely have had to adapt in the last 100 to 150 years. And I'm sure some that we don't even know about are extirpated from those areas. And a lot, like the horn lizards, have constricted in their range uh, as a result. Right, right. But we have the harvester ant that seems to uh, get by just as well with or without fire, right? <laughs> yeah, they, they seem to be doing okay. I think the primary thing that uh, is impacting them right now is, is humans. A lot of people try to treat areas which is translates into killing harvester ant colonies. And I think to some extent the harvester ants have also been able to find areas that have components of fire-adapted ecosystems. For example, when you graze an area, you keep the, you keep the shrubs down. Uh, when you till an area or when you actively uh, you know, even mow an area, you have areas that have you know, sunlight and components that the harvester ants are probably looking for. Right, so they're using these, uh, you know, maybe you would call them disturbed uh, uh, areas that, you know, maybe in certain ways look similar to uh, uh, what, you know, these uh, areas that have burned recently might look like. Exactly. They're they're probably not ideal, but they're survivable. Gotcha, gotcha. So R- Rachel explained that, that she, she explained to us that there is anecdotal evidence suggesting that harvester ant populations are declining. And, and, and you mentioned... Um, you mentioned that there are uh, certainly people out there that you know are intentionally trying to remove, uh, you know, har- harvester ant colonies. Um, but you know, I, 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 I guess I'm wondering, you know, what your take on the situation is for for harvester ants. I mean, do do you think that they are on the decline, and and if so, you know, what what factors are uh, maybe having it having an influence on that aside from the direct, you know, uh, killing of you know and removal of colonies by people. So when you get into an area of research, this is always something that's frustrating that there's not very many studies. And that's, that's true for this too. There's not very many population level studies of harvester ants in Texas. So it's hard to say if there is a decline, though we hear from managers and landowners constantly that they see fewer harvester ant colonies. So it leads us to believe there probably is. Uh, if there is one, I would speculate that it's probably a direct result of this shrub and tree encroachment. We're shading out grasses. We're shading out these areas so that the harvest ants don't have nice warm ground to live in and they don't have grasses to get those seeds to survive on. Rachel mentioned uh, the introduction of uh, the fire ant as a potential cause for declines in, in harvest ant populations. I, I, I wonder what your take on, on that is. 
I would definitely say it's a potential cause. It's really hard to um, to know if this is a cause and effect or if this is a correlative thing. Uh, fire ants are starting to move into these areas where we're seeing fewer and fewer harvester ants, but there's also different land management practices, fire suppression that are occurring simultaneously. Fire ants tend to live in moister, uh, more anthropogenically disturbed and managed areas, whereas harvester ants tend to prefer these arid uh, ecosystem, so there may not be that much overlap, but it's it's a potential cause. So, what is being done to try to help uh, sort of restore these uh, fire adapted ecosystems uh, in, in in central te- Texas? So, there's active uh, prescribed fire use in a lot of these areas, where prescribed fire helps to mimic natural wildfires. There's uh, shrub shrub removal through mechanical methods, so things like grubbing or cutting down these trees. There's some work on uh, reseeding native prairies. Uh, it's a mixed bag, though. It's, the process is still pretty slow. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, I'm, I'm curious about, you know, this sort of comparison between, you know, uh, uh, mechanical means of sort of clearing an area and trying to restore uh, uh, habitat versus, you know, actually using... Uh, a prescribed fire um, to 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 bring about that 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 restoration, um, and it, it seems to me like the harvester ant probably doesn't care, right? But I'm sure that a lot of the other species um, that uh, you know are are native to these ecosystems that um, there there is maybe a significant difference between these two types of restoration. Right. Uh, so mechanical methods are probably most effective when they're used in conjunction with prescribed fire. Uh, a lot of times fires, they're coming through in a short grass prairie. They're not going to be able to get to these mature shrubs versus when you know, shrubs when smaller successional stages, uh, you know, two or three years old, they might have been able to consume them. So using a mechanical method to knock down these shrubs and then burning it is probably the way to get at the best restoration. But yeah, there are a lot of species, especially plant species, that need fire to perpetuate. They need to scarify the seeds. They need to stimulate growth. They need to help get rid of some of those fire uh, non-adapted species. All of my sort of background in biology comes from studying birds, right? And so I'm, I'm particularly fascinated about how one goes about sort of observing and studying um, an ant species. Um, so uh, I guess I'm wondering if you could give us sort of an example of just a basic study design. Uh, so harvester ants, you're, we're lucky with harvester ants because colonies are easy to find. They're big disks, and the colonies are also discrete. You know when you find a disk, you found a single colony. And the really important thing to remember when you're studying ants is that the colony is the experimental unit. A colony might have thousands of ants, but those individuals are all really closely related, so they don't constitute independent sampling units. So to do ant work, you need to be able to locate uh, – ant population work, that is. You need to be able to locate a lot of colonies which can actually be pretty difficult with a lot of smaller, less conspicuous ant species. Uh, so once you have your colonies, all you really need is your question, your methods. And standard collecting gear for ants is aspirators, forceps, vials. So it's pretty easy to acquire stuff. Uh, so if we take Anna Meyer, uh, one, the master student that I mentioned earlier, we take her work. She was interested as part of her work in looking at the average number of individuals per colony in burned and unburned areas. So first she had to locate enough colonies, which for her turned out to be about 30. 
uh, in each burned and unburned area. And so if memory serves me, she had five burned areas, five unburned areas. So in total, she had about 150 colonies in each burned area and 150 colonies in each unburned area. Uh, and for her work, she actually collected 100 individuals to capture that intra-colony variation and then marked them with uh, fingernail polish and released them and then recaptured a sample of ants the next day. Uh, to look at that colony size question. But yeah, you need to look at intra-colony variation, inter-colony variation, and then you also, for burning, need to look at different burns. So it can be a pretty pretty large study design. <laughs> so if uh, I just want to make sure I'm, I'm understanding this, this correctly. So in order to figure out uh, sort of the, the an, an, an estimate, right, of the population size of a particular colony, she was capturing individual ants and marking them with nail polish and then going back the next day and basically seeing how many of those marked individual ants she could recover? That's correct. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a variation of the Lincoln-Peterson index that they came up with for ants uh, in the 1950s. And yeah, you mark them with a little bit of paint. Nail polish works great because you've got that small brush anyway. And you mark 100, let them go, and the next day come back and collect 100 ants and see how many of those ants have your nail polish. And then just plug it into a little equation and you get a colony size. Huh, fascinating. <laughs> yeah, it's tedious work. She had a she had a work cut out for her out there. <laughs> I mean, I guess I'm, I'm just curious, like, what, what you know, what, what kind of population sizes she, was she seeing? I mean, what, you know, uh, and, and, and I mean, you know, what sort of the range, you know, for that, that she saw for harvester ants? Uh, anywhere from about three to 500 to about 10,000 per colony. Wow, wow. So, yeah, a really big range. Wow. And that probably correlates some with colony age. Sure, sure. There must be a way to to look at, you know, one of these disks, right? I mean, does the size of the disk, you know, does that correlate to, you know, the, the, the population size of the ants under the ground? We were hoping so. We actually took that measurement and ran a little regression and nothing. No, not a, not a correlation at all. <laughs> huh, fascinating. So you could have a small little disk and there could be a, you know, 10,000 ants hidden under there. and yeah. Or vice versa, you know, right. a thousand ants in this giant one meter disc. Right. Huh. Huh. Very interesting. We have anecdotal evidence that harvester ant populations are declining, but we don't know for sure because there hasn't been enough research um, on harvester ant populations. Um, I mean, what can we do to get folks more interested in, in ants and harvester ants in particular? I mean, it seems like this is a really important group of, of animals. You know, obviously they're they're extremely important for horned lizards. Um, but I mean, it, it, it seems like an important question and I, I, you know, I, I'm sure you've put some thought into how to encourage more folks to get interested in, in doing this research. Uh, yeah. So for, I'll take the harvester ant part first and then go into ants in general. Uh, harvester ants aren't really, they're really conspicuous, but they really aren't that charismatic. They have a really nasty sting and they make these big dirt patches around their nests, which for people who have yards that they want to maintain or pets or small children is not ideal at all. Uh, so I think what we really have to do to get public interest in harvester ants is to emphasize the good, uh, really focus on that ecological importance, the seed dispersal, uh, the horned lizard connection. And I think if people start to see them in that light and value them, they'll see them as more of a vital part of the ecosystem. Uh, 
But to get people studying ants in general, I think we've got to highlight all the cool work that's being done. You know, podcasts like yours are a great way to do that. Uh, you know, for example, we've got Steve Yanoviak at the University of Louisville looking at how ants swim right now. And uh, Walter Schinkel in Florida is studying ant nest architecture. He's made casts of nests that are 9 or 10 feet deep. And there's tons of more cool stories. You know, ants as farmers of aphids, uh, surviving extreme heat, like 70 degrees Celsius in the Saharan Desert. Uh, ants that put whole nests in acorns. And I think if we get these kind of stories out there and get people listening, they'll get, they'll get excited about it. Yeah, you got, yeah, you got you me got intrigued. Me. I, 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 I want to hear more about all these uh, interesting ant stories. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, there's 16,000 species of ants, and you know, we probably know very little about most of them. For folks who live in fire-adapted ecosystems, um, which is a lot of people, <laughs> um, I, I guess I'm wondering if, you know, if, if there's anything you can point to, any, any way for uh, these folks to get more involved and in, in actively managing these landscapes yeah there, there are definitely state federal agencies uh, non-government organizations private contractors that are happy to work with landowners to develop fire management plans uh, assist them with prescribed burns train landowners to safely implement fire uh, i probably know texas best so in texas a good place to start looking is the state prescribed burn board uh, they have a program to train and certify prescribed burn managers, both on a private and a commercial level. Uh, additionally, there are folks at uh, the Texas Forest Service, Texas Parks and Wildlife, NRCS that have specific jobs to help landowners and work with them to get these fire fire management plans going. So Rachel talked about uh, this concept of burn collectives in Central Texas. You know, she sort of presented this as as a uh, sort of a, a really interesting and, and uh, sort of innovative way to, to get groups of landowners to come together um, and, and participate in restoration projects like this. Um, I, I wonder if, uh, and I don't know if you know the answer is, but I mean, is, is this an idea that, I mean, is this just happening in Texas or, I mean, is this an idea that's spreading and can people find burn collectives elsewhere in the U.S.? Uh, so I, if memory serves me, I believe Florida was actually the first state to implement prescribed burn associations. Uh, and yeah, there are several states across the southeastern United States that have these prescribed burn associations in place. And they're really great opportunities for local landowners to find ways to get fire on the ground. If they don't have the tools themselves or the skills, they can come together and work with other people who might. I will definitely do a little more research on that and, and include some links in the show notes here for uh, uh, folks to to find burn collectives in their area if they happen to be living in the southeastern U.S. and these areas where... Uh, where most of the land is privately owned, um, but where the ecosystems also benefit from prescribed fire and these rest- these types of restoration efforts. Well, thanks a lot for coming onto the show and sharing all this fantastic information with us. It's really neat to get a little bit of a different perspective uh, uh, and learn about um, some invertebrate wildlife populations, which we don't talk about nearly as much uh, on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. It's always good to get uh, get the message out there and get people excited about ants. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, thanks a lot, Robin. Thank you. Have a great day. All right. That was our interview with Robin Verbal Pearson from Texas Tech University. After chatting with Robin, I definitely want to learn more about ants. What does everybody else think out there? Should we do more episodes about ants, as Robin suggested? Uh, check out the show notes page for this episode and leave us a comment there uh, to let me know what you think. Uh, you can find those show notes at wildlensinc.org eoc20. 
Also on that show notes page, you can find links to watch our video about the Texas horn lizard, which features an interview with Robin, uh, as well as some additional information on Robin's research. And, of course, I promised towards the end of that interview that I would dig up some information on prescribed burn cooperatives in different states. So, yes, I have done my homework, and I did get those links uh, uh, prepared and, and up on the site, so be sure to check that out as well. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humanoids.